0: The history of sickle cell disease has been marked by controversies over therapy, prevention, and funding. Despite recent developments in treating pain crises and gene therapy, many patients still struggle to have their symptoms recognized and adequately addressed. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Keith Wailoo, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Professor Wailu has written a perspective article about advances in understanding and treating sickle cell disease and about the challenges that remain. Professor Wailu, in your article, you highlight the Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act, which was signed by President Nixon in 1972. Why was that law a turning point, and what took us so long to get there?
1: That's a great question. It took a long time to get there for a number of reasons. The first, I would say, is relates to the point that you mentioned earlier, which is that for most of the 20th century, sickle cell disease was an invisible disease precisely because it was so hard to clinically recognize, clinical recognition being crucial to actually addressing it. After all, here's a disease that caused early infant mortality in a time period when infant mortality and infectious disease mortality prevailed. So it was really clinically difficult, despite the fact that sickle cell disease were discovered in 1910 by James Herrick It was actually very difficult to translate that knowledge into widespread diagnostic practice because how did you know whether a child coming in suffering recurring pains, frequent infections, life-threatening infections, how did you know that they were carrying sickle cell disease or they had sickle cell disease? So the way in which knowledge translates into practice was the key challenge from 1910 all the way through the 1950s. And it's really only in the post-1950s era, 50s into the 1960s, with, frankly, with the rise of antibiotics, with the rise of penicillin and the ability to treat infections much more aggressively and successfully, that sickle cell disease becomes more clinically visible and as a result more socially visible. So there's a long, you might say, lag between the discovery and clinical recognition and social recognition.
0: Treating sickle cell disease requires a two-pronged approach, managing pain crises and preventing long-term organ damage. How has that affected efforts to address the problem?
1: Well, one issues in the history of sickle cell disease is that there are many different symptoms that can be the cause of mortality as I mentioned in the early part of the 20th century it was infectious disease infections that claimed the lives of people with sickle cell disease but as you begin to be able to manage those infections you have patients who become more clinically visible but also patients who now have painful crises more frequently or, as you say, longer-term sequelae of having sickle cell disease like organ damage. The question of which of these is more important at any given time is a clinical challenge, but it's also a social challenge. Through the 1960s, as sickle cell disease becomes more visible, what you have is it intersects with rising social visibility. In some ways, sickle cell disease's visibility in the 60s can't be distinguished from the civil rights era, in which sickle cell is understood as a disease of pain and suffering of African Americans that had long been too much ignored. You can see how recognition clinically translates into social recognition, but that also raises the question of what should be done. As we know today, as well as in the 1960s, the pain medicine was a highly controversial realm. How do you know when somebody is in pain? How much pain relief and of what kind should they be offered? And what are the consequences of using potentially like narcotics or potentially addictive medicines too aggressively? These are the kinds of, you might say, clinical challenges that also become social and political challenges, defining the kinds of questions and also the kinds of progress as well as the perils of progress associated with sickle cell disease.
0: So looking at that last one, what can be done to ensure that people with sickle cell disease get adequate pain treatment, particularly now with the concerns about the over-prescribing of opioids and the stigmatization of black Americans who are looking for pain relief?
1: Well, I think, as I've written about elsewhere, educating physicians about the complexities of pain. I think in the history of pain medicine, we tend to pivot in whiplash fashion between being anxious about over-treatment. To being anxious about undertreatment and unquestionably people with sickle cell disease have long been at risk for being undertreated because they're seen often particularly let's say in an urban emergency room setting as drug seekers as people who are not actually in pain or at least they're not in pain to the degree that they claim they're in pain so there's an atmosphere of skepticism about pain and pain medicine, that we are currently, you might say, in the middle of this swirling maelstrom of controversy. At this particular moment, I would say people with sickle cell disease are particularly vulnerable because we are at a kind of a heightened moment of anxiety and concern about overprescription. But the history of the disease suggests that suspicion has actually been an enormous impediment to people getting compassionate and effective care. What can be done? I think Frankly, conversations like this, better medical education, both in medical schools, but also through the venues of important medical periodicals like this.
0: What does genetic counseling look like for sickle cell disease? Has that changed over the years? How does it compare to counseling for other heritable conditions?
1: So this historically has been one of the most fraught topics in the history of sickle cell disease. After Linus Pauling in the late 1940s uh, discovers the role of amino acid, some misubstitution in causing red blood cells to sickle because of a substituted amino acid on hemoglobin, there opens up this possibility of curing sickle cell disease, both or at least preventing it as well, curing it perhaps by finding a molecule to latch onto the hemoglobin. That's sort of the dream of molecular cures that really predates the era of gene therapy. And the other dream is the idea of being able to diagnose carriers and provide them with information so that they could make wise decisions about children that they bring into this world. But in some ways, sickle cell disease is the leading edge of this new development of gene genetic counseling as it is emerging in the late 60s, early 1970s. And because it's the leading edge, you might say genetic counselors learn that the difference between open counseling and coercive counseling... And in the context of the late 60s, early 70s, sickle cell disease counseling tilts perhaps too much towards the coercive counseling, pushing people to rethink their choices about having children. For many in the black community in the 60s and 70s, it sort of segues into their anxieties about racial genocide, the push to prevent people from having children despite the infirmities that they might carry. So you might say sickle cell disease is one of the first diseases to kind of go through this other set of controversies surrounding how should genetic counseling be done, how sensitive should counselors be towards parental autonomy and decision-making, how much persuasion should they use. I think over the course of the time since the 1970s, genetic counseling has become far more sensitive to the needs of providing information without undue pressure or coercion, let alone these sort of broader implications that one is trying to substitute their own judgment for the judgment of the parents who may or may not be carrying a child with sickle cell disease.
0: Looking at potential new therapies, you say in your article that most clinicians acknowledge that they won't cure sickle cell disease, they'll just enhance long-term management of the condition. So what's keeping stem cell transplantation, bone marrow transplantation from being viable cures? of the condition?
1: Well, stem cell, bone marrow transplantation has, carries with it an inherent controversy. That is to say, bone marrow transplants can cure, but they can also create mortality. They're, it's a dangerous procedure. And there's also this very fraught and still uncertain middle ground of creating a cure for sickle cell disease, but producing, as a result of the procedure, graft-versus-host disease. In which case, what one is doing is trading one kind of disease for another sort of disease. You might say the dream of technology more generally in American medicine is that every technology, every intervention produces a cure. The reality of technology is in many ways very much like the reality of penicillin, bone marrow transplantation, insulin in the case of diabetes, hydroxyurea, which is better and improved management for disease disease which can also produce unintended perils, greater risks, alongside the extension of life. And so in some ways, I see bone marrow transplantation as Lewis Thomas years ago talked about these sorts of things as halfway technologies. But in fact, most technological interventions, even as dramatic as they are, can sometimes have this double-edged quality.
0: Finally, in a case report in the journal, Rabiel and colleagues describe a patient with sickle cell disease who was treated with gene therapy. What does that report add to our knowledge about sickle cell treatment, and where do you think research is going to be going from here?
1: So the gene therapy story is fascinating, partly because it provides for me an echo of the past, an echo of the time when... The discovery of the hemoglobin's role in sickling produced a dream of a technological fix in the 1950s this took the form of creating a new enzyme that might lock on to the hemoglobin and prevent it from sickling and therefore prevent the blood cell from sickling and thus cure the disease. Now, we know that that dream didn't come to pass, but it didn't stop scientists from attempting different kinds of urea and other kinds of molecular cures. To me, the story of gene therapy fits into that because, in some ways, you can say it's the final realization of that dream of a technological fix, not at the level of the hemoglobin, but at the level of the gene. At the same time, it carries with it the same kinds of dangers that bone marrow transplantation carries. That is to say, there's a lingering anxiety of insertional oncogenesis, that is, the creation of mutation as an unintended result of the procedure, the creation of a mutagenic event that could disrupt gene structure, alter gene transcription, regulation, or coding sequences. And it's really that balancing act between the dream of what gene therapy could be and the possibility, the peril, of that this may in fact be like marrow transplantation, the treating of one disease for another. That's to me where this new chapter belongs It's a very important development, but belongs amidst this complex history that I've described. Thank you, Professor Weilu.